Welcome to the Mental Health Boot Camp Podcast. This is the podcast where four psychotherapists, three of us Canadian, one of us Americans, serve you cutting edge mental health knowledge. I am Dr. Ryan House, a clinical psychologist from Pasadena, California. And I'm Dr. Brooke Lewis, a registered clinical counselor from the greater Vancouver area. And I'm Joanna Boyd, also a clinical counselor from Coquitlam. I'm Chris Boyd, a psychotherapist from Port Moody. Welcome, everybody. Been a couple of weeks. We're back in action here. It's kind of fun. It is nice to be here. It is nice to be here. Nice to see your smiling faces again. I look forward to coming to Canada in a month or so, month and a half, and seeing you guys face to face. Are we going to record a podcast? I think think we should. We have to. Maybe we should do a live podcast. Maybe we should do one of those things where we invite, you know, hundreds of people and we sit on stage and like we're just sitting in a random park and being like <laughs> you want to come listen to us hi come come join us chase people down like hey you listen to us we'll get a lot of people to come come onto the podcast and be uh, our guests if we want to just come on over here talk to us for a little bit <laughs> it reminds me of what was that uh commercial for and they set up like a pop-up tent with a little couple chairs and tissues Oh, and yeah. the person could come and chat. Was it for tissues? It was. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was like It'll a, like a commercial or something. pop-up therapist tent in the park. Fun. Very Port Moody of us. Let's, we'll consider that. If anyone has yeah. any ideas. Well, uh, let us know. Let us know on Instagram or Facebook or something. Because we don't have an email address anymore. <laughs> Um, I've got something interesting coming up. Speaking of events, you ready for this? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to do my first book signing. This oh, week. that's good. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of cool. For the men's journal. So the, uh, mental health journal for men, uh, I'm going to go and speak at a, uh, a local location to talk about the journal. That's awesome. Saturday. Yeah. So uh, where is that taking place? It is called, uh, let me, <laughs> let me figure that out. <laughs> it's uh, if you go to LAX. Okay. And then you take a right. Okay. Yeah. You go to Anaheim or <laughs> it's uh, it's called the book. Uh, hold on. Let me look it up here. Just sure. Is it called the bookstore? It's called the bookstore. If you're if you've ever been to LAX, there's an in and out that's right next to the LAX. I'm <laughs> just thinking about that. <laughs> Do you know that one? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. It's across the street from that place. It is called. Is it actually there? Yeah. Called the Book Jewel. Book Jewel. So this Saturday, May 14th at 12 p.m., the Book Jewel uh in I'm not sure what city that is, if that's uh Marina Del Rey or Westchester, something like that. It's Ooh. right by LAX. Uh, I'm going to be doing a, a book science. I'm going to read a little bit from my book and I'm going to talk about men's mental health stuff and the benefits of 
journaling. Chris, I may need to get that Pennebaker uh, reference from you. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, and do some Q and A, and then gonna go across the street and eat lunch at In and Out probably. That sounds oh, great. Great. Yeah. Maybe kind of you can uh, earbud us in, and we'll just listen for questions so that if you need a reference, Chris will just tell you. Oh, that's perfect. You guys can be my designated Googlers and be like, oh, yeah, yeah of course. According to Pennebaker, 2004, <laughs> da, 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 right? Perfect. I just can't believe you told us about this now. I'd love to go down to LAX and stroll down to uh, In-N-Out Burger and maybe check out the bookstore across the street. <laughs> and then jump back on the plane and come home. <laughs> yeah, no, it'll be fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I haven't, haven't done one of these before, so we kind of... Uh, We'll see. Maybe there'll be, I know that there'll be at least two people in the crowd, my sons, but I don't know if anyone else will be there. I'm sure there will be some people. How does that come about? Was that like, um, I don't know, the agent or a publicist or was it the bookstore or how, how does someone do even organize that? Uh, I'm not sure how other people do it, but I was at someone's party about two months ago. Someone was having a, a, a CD release party. And I went to his house and I was hanging out, kind of chatting with, with some of the people there. And the owner of this bookstore was there. And uh, he said, yeah, I own a bookstore. He actually owns two bookstores, one in Long Beach and this one in Westchester. And, uh, and I said, oh, that's cool. I've, I've actually got a book. And he said, oh, great. I think he's really eager to get people to come do these kind of author signings. I think it's kind of a big deal for his bookstores. And so he said, why don't you come on, let's get you on the schedule. Come on down. I'm like, great. Happy to do just it. Just like that. Bada bing, bada boom. So I guess you just got to be at the right party at the right time, I guess. No kidding. <clears throat> no, that's good. You have this on Amazon, Ryan. Uh, 429 reviews for your book. Uh, 4.6 out of 5. That's crazy. Well that's done. excellent. But your, your book is rocking it, like on the mental health list. Like, yeah. You really uh, found a niche there, eh? It's it's done well, and I, I'm, I'm happy about it. And you know what's really nice because I don't I don't really see a lot of the those stats and that sort of thing. But I've had a couple of people who've who've uh, sent me an email saying, "Hey, thanks a lot. That book has really been helpful for me." And you know, kind of tell me a little bit of their story. And it's, it's really nice to get a little bit of that kind of personal feedback. So you, you write something like this, and it kind of goes out in the void. You don't even know if if it's making an impact. So once in a while, I hear something about it. It's like, oh, that's really cool. So, yeah. Well, you should check out Amazon because uh, lots of fantastic reviews on here. Tons <laughs> of five out of fives. Well, that's great. Well, it was a fun, fun thing to write at the beginning of the pandemic. That's for sure. Yeah. A little bright spot at a very dark time. Yeah. This one fellow, Frank, he said, uh, He's uh, legitimately have pulled back layers uh, and the just uh, the first few prompts. Amazing in capital letters. Wow. Yeah. Well, great. Thanks, He's Frank. Really, really enjoying it, Frank. Aw. Great. Nice. Well, Frank is my son. He wrote that for me. No, I'm just. It's <laughs> <laughs> not my son. Yeah. No, it's cool to have it out there and. If we're talking about it and who knows, who knows? Nothing, nothing else it'll be a day at the beach so that'll be fun too there we go yes 
So uh, speaking of books, we have a book club coming up here in a few weeks, and it's not the Mental Health Journal for Men. It is a book called Cast, C-A-S-T-E, and it is about some of the, um, basically it's making the argument that the United States uh, has kind of a caste system. I don't know if she's including Canada in that, but. No. No, but uh, kind of saying that that a, the United States has a, a caste system that's similar to like the Indian caste system, uh, the Hindu kind of based system, and makes uh, strong arguments for that. And that's it's been an interesting read so far. So we're going to discuss that together in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're planning on reading it, give yourself lots of time. It's a long one. It's a heavier read. It's a thick read. You might have to take breaks. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, not in a beginner book, that is for sure. So. Yeah. If you're not a strong reader, then maybe listen. But even listening uh, at normal speed is 14 hours or something like that. So. Right. Right. So I've been, well, I guess we save our reviews for later, but I've been mm-hmm. engaged. I'll say that much. I've been engaged in the book so far. Yes. That's great. Yeah, Chris finished the book already. I'm halfway. Joanna has yet to start. But I have it. So but you have it. I do. Well, that's Personally. good. Yeah. So that uh, that podcast we had recently on time management, was that... Uh, part of this for you joe <laughs> i've had it for a few weeks i just gotta just gotta do it just gotta crack the cover <laughs> oh that's great yes dive on in well i think we should get to our ambush yeah let's do it ryan it's you tonight yeah it's me tonight yes it's me tonight are you guys ready for this ambush Yes, maybe <laughs> the ambush. One of us knows the topic. The other three do not. I know the topic. I'm ready to talk about it. You guys aren't. Get ready. Here it comes. What is the internal critic? Where does it come from? What can we do about it? And a little side question. Are people who are critical towards themselves critical of others? Something I'd like to address. The internal critic, also known as negative self-talk, also known as the critical voice. I think we all have one. Uh, and we talk, we've talked about self-talk a little bit before. Uh, negative self-talk is kind of a standard topic, but I know that this is something that I talk about with clients in therapy often. And, uh, and it's, I think it's an interesting one because there's, there are different theories on where that voice comes from and what it's all about and what to do about it. So, yeah, that's a great topic. It's very, very relevant. I'm curious, Ron, do you, uh, sometimes I've, I've talked to people, uh, one or two clients at least who said they don't have that inner voice or inner critic. Do you think that's possible or like, is it just, they don't understand or, Oh, they don't have a, an awareness of it, but it's probably there. Like, are you talking about a conscience, Chris? No, just that that, that internal dialogue, that voice that 
that is there, you know? Hmm. Yeah. The voice, I mean, I'm thinking of the voice that says, oh, I'm such an idiot, or oh, that was such a dumb thing to say. Oh, uh, I see. Okay. Yeah. And uh, gosh, I, I may have encountered some people who maybe weren't aware of that, but I think after talking about it a little bit, they're like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I can be yeah. critical of myself. But for, for some people, that voice is very loud and it's kind of the loudest voice they hear most of the day or, you know, a lot of times after interactions with other people, they're thinking, oh, I should have said this. I should have done that. You know, oh, I looked I looked stupid. Or even when they're, you know, just in public, they're like, oh, my, my pants are wrinkled. You know, whatever it might be, that's very critical of the self. And I just like to kind of dissect that a little bit and figure out what's that all about and and then what can we do about it? Sure. Um, as we talked about in previous boot camps, we do have a negativity bias as human beings. So when things are kind of quiet, our mind tends to gravitate towards those negatives. I remember the study that was done a while ago. Of course, I don't have, you know, I'm probably going to butcher it a bit, but they're doing an FM, fMRI study on someone and uh, they're going to give the person some prompts and measure the brain waves. And uh, so the person went into the MRI machine and the researchers were kind of just getting organized and they realized that the person's brain lit up like a Christmas tree. It's like, boom. And they're kind of baffled. They're like, what is, what's going on in there? We haven't actually asked them to, to do anything yet. What they realize is that this default mode network, this internal dialogue um, kind of kicked in, right? So when there's not a lot of distractions happening, we're not focusing our mind in, in meaningful ways or on a task, whatever it might be, then often this internal dialogue gets rolling and, and usually it has a bit of a negative slant to it due to that negativity bias that we have. Chris, do you, I was talking to a client about just a little sidestep of the, for the negativity bias. Do you know why that is? Like why us humans do have a negativity bias? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. And she asked you, Chris, go. Uh, yeah. It's based on our biology. So it's, it's kind of um, evolutionary, right? Oh, so it made, made sense for us to focus and fixate on potential harm and danger. Right? Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah. Ryan, you're going to start your hand up there. Say the same thing, but just with a different slant, which is it's, it's, it's intention, I believe, is to keep us safe. It's to protect us from, from negative criticism from the outside or any sort of threat or harm that might be coming our way. Um, I believe, though, that you know, what we work on with some of our clients is the fact that some of that protection is so uh, overblown that it actually causes uh, much more negative consequences than positive, right? So it's, it's like this kind of mis, this misdirected or, or overblown attempt to protect ourselves that actually becomes very harmful. So, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to make a fool of myself or I don't want to become the object of ridicule from people. That's, that's reasonable, but then I flood myself with all these thoughts of self-criticism and I overblow all of these perceptions that I have that actually inhibits me or makes me just say all these really horrible things to myself. For sure. So this mind was created to keep us safe. Um, but back then, hundreds of thousands of years ago, it was a little more simple, you know, focusing on predators and whatnot. And it helped us collaborate and sophisticated ways and find ways to protect ourselves but it's been like this diversification of danger so now danger today is a lot different from danger back then 
Mm-hmm. So danger today has a lot to do with what's going on socially and work and our families and all sorts of things, right? Yes. So Chris, you asked the question of, have you ever met anybody with without a critical voice or a, a, a negative self-talk? Um, I'll just ask you guys, is there any chance any one of you have ever experienced negative self-talk? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I say that a little facetiously. I'm pretty sure we all have. Right. Um, and those, those messages can be, so what do they, what do they actually end up doing? If it's, if it's, as I, I talk about it kind of being overblown at times, like for me, I'll speak for me. Um, if I have some really negative self-talk, it can, it can stop me from doing things that I want to do. Like, let's say I want to go and talk to somebody. Let's say, oh, I, I've heard of this, this person over here. I'd like to talk to him or her. Um, it might stop me in my tracks and make me too inhibited or too scared to actually take that risk. Or mm-hmm. it might, uh, or I might have an interaction with somebody that's actually fine, but it might, I might beat myself up for it all the way home afterwards, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like the inner critic is a, a source of inner judgment, right? Like that might not, um, it might not be a big berating sense, but it might just be like a, oh, can't believe you just did that. Or, oh, I wish I had done that differently. So maybe some of these clients, Chris, that you have, maybe it's not that they um, don't have the inner critic, but maybe their inner critic is just more subtle, yeah, like it might just kind of be these these smaller like <sighs> moments. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, to Ryan's point, the more you kind of delve into it, it seems like there is that critic there or that voice there. It's just they maybe perceive it a little differently, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, but Ryan, you, you mentioned I, I think this inner in terms of why the the voice is there. I think it, I think it is a defense mechanism. Like, why would those negative thoughts try to convince you not to talk to that person? Like, what, what purpose does that serve to you? It might be trying to convince you to not do so, so you don't embarrass yourself, so you don't feel bad after, right? So yeah. Get, yeah. Yeah, that's the sense that I get that it's, it's trying to um, protect, protect you. Going back to the safety thing, it's trying to protect you from making a misstep that you would then regret later on or that would do harm to you somehow. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to speak of some of the theories of why this happens um, in the in the psychoanalytic world, the idea of the inner critic is actually thought of as the internalized parent. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not 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 all of the parents, not all the loving parts of the parent, just the critical parts of the parent. The parent mm-hmm. who says, no, don't do that. Don't step over there. Don't say that. You know, the these messages that you might receive as a kid and then. Uh, and then really kind of embrace and internalize that, that all the no messages that you got go, growing up. And, and the idea there in the, in, the, in the psychoanalytic world is that you kind of grabbed onto those no's and you held on strong and they're hard to let go of. And so you kind of, they echo in your, in your brain and uh, say, oh, you shouldn't have done that. And that's not good manners or polite people don't do that or, you know. These sorts of things that that are trying to kind of protect you and guide you, but uh, 
end up really inhibiting things and then helping you kind of beat yourself up afterwards. You're kind of punishing yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's pretty, you know, therapeutically speaking, like that's kind of where mindfulness comes in again, right? Just trying to help notice the thoughts non-judgmentally or curiosity because um, for lots of folks out there, I know for myself for a good portion of my life, you, because it's happening in your own mind, because it's happening in your own consciousness, you tend to believe it, right? Because you're the one thinking it. So how would you not believe it? It's got to be the truth, right? So that's where mindfulness is helpful because it helps you see it more non-judgmentally with curiosity and not take the bait and believe every thought that pops into your mind, right? And I like to use that example too, where, you know, I ask a client, if I followed you around one day and said half the stuff you say to yourself, so imagine that you leave my office, you're walking down our cheesy 70 staircase and say, you're not good enough. You're a failure, blah, blah, blah. What would you do? And usually the client will say, well, I'll, I'll turn around and tell you, leave me alone um, or punch you in the neck, right? Um, not to condone violence, but the, uh, but of course we'd, we'd handle those, those thoughts and judgments differently um, when it's externalized like that. But when it's happening in our own minds, we tend to take the bait and believe it. Mm-hmm. or give it permission or, mm-hmm. or let it guide our behavior mm-hmm. yeah another exercise i've heard with that chris is is people saying well would you would you tell your best friend these sorts of these same sorts mm-hmm. of problems, you know yeah there's a bit of a double standard there definitely a double standard how about for those people who actually are told that by other people like in a bullying situation mm-hmm. or by family members like you know, it's, they are told that and they sometimes find it hard to speak up for themselves or to stand up for themselves or to tell that person to go away. So they're trying not to internalize something yet other people are actually saying it to them. And so it's hard if they're like, well, I'm believing it. Other people are believing it. Why that must be true, you know? But so how do you deal with that if it is actually coming externally? Yeah, no, that's a good question, Joe. And it's extra hard. Um, you work with persons younger than the, the population I work with. So kind of getting, you know, the young adults. So it's almost retrospective by the time I'm hearing from them, like they're not around those people anymore. Not always. So they, sometimes there's an abusive relationship with name calling and labeling, um, or they're no longer in the, the family home, but sometimes they are. But even just brain development as it goes on, um, like there's more of a context and they have more life experience to say it's not everyone. But it's, I think it's extra uh, difficult or imprinting when it is happening at a young, young age. Like if those, because then that turns, instead of an inner critic, it's turning into a, a negative self-belief about yourself. It's um, not just about your behavior. It's about you, where you are a bad person and you are awful and you are. And then that's going to develop into immense like shame growing up. There's going to be as an adult, there's going to be a lot of barriers there and you're going to see a lot of, I think, self-destructive behaviors and um, different things happen there from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's a good point. Just the developmental piece of that, right? So yeah. when you're getting that messaging at a younger age, it, it, really, it can really stick and imprint and yeah. impact the scaffolding of your brain and mind because you have a hard time seeing that that's hey that's external that's someone else there's other dynamics going on here right the the young brain just cannot conceptualize that like it is i am who my caregivers believe me to be right like that's the only frame of reference and that's the only way the brain works and how about for like peers though 
yeah young child but that teenager who yeah is only hearing that from well teenagers too right because their brain again at that point is hardwired for like who am I in relation to another person and so if other people are saying those things then that really does get in there and that's what makes bullying like genuine bullying so uh, intensely difficult yeah, yeah there needs to be a lot of buffers around that person a lot of resiliency buffers of people saying the opposite thing that isn't just family but in social relationships like sporting groups or interest or hobby groups or people of that same age group to say well that's not true yeah yeah i find too Joe, that as a child you often look to your caregivers the parents the adults for that validation so when you're not getting good messaging back that can be very harmful then around the age of 12 or so increasing neurons lack of pathways you start to make that shift towards your peers and that makes sense so from an evolutionary perspective that you want to develop close connections to people your own age right um but if you're also getting negative messaging from them then you don't have much to buffer against that um so yeah in terms of counseling often there's so many different approaches to of course help someone but you know from a cognitive behavioral cbt perspective you know, some cognitive reframing and just trying to assess some of those thoughts and beliefs. I find that psychoeducation too. So, you know, bullies, um, what's going on in their minds, you know? Um, Often it's a a sign that there might be some, you know, they're dealing with some insecurities or vulnerabilities or whatever it might be, their own defense mechanisms, right? So trying to look at things, broaden the perspective a bit on the scenario. Or genuine like sure there might be insecurities and all those things like I agree with that um they may be actually speaking their inner aggressive voice like the uh, I have a sense that s- some bullies not all but are coming from backgrounds or homes where the type of language they're using towards other people is the type of language that is being used towards them right so that for them is a normal way to speak or interact with people they're just kind of parroting or replicating that um, back out, which is too bad. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, interesting. As I, I don't really work with many. I don't really don't work with, the, with young people, um, with minors. But in uh, when I work with adults, sometimes we'll talk about the fact that. Um, let's say someone is uh someone's driving home but they're they're late they know they're late 15 minutes late they're beating themselves up boom oh i'm I'm late i'm late oh man this is so bad why did i leave work late what's wrong with me they get home and then then their spouse says what's wrong with you why are you late you know what's going on you said you're going to be here and and talk about the fact that at that point they feel like they're being ganged up on in some way right i've already got my negative voice coming towards me and then I have this external negative voice coming towards me. And now it feels like I'm being ganged up on. And that's sometimes where some of the anger comes out. Like I need to defend myself and protect myself. So it's this, this kind of split in the person where I can be both negative towards myself, but I also want to protect myself too, or defend myself. And then I hear my, my partner or someone else yelling at me too. Then I feel like, oh, now it's, it's, I'm ganged up on, it's two on one. And that's where some of the more, um, you know, really angry, anger, angry uh, responses can come out at that point. And, and for some people, just being able to parse that out and say, 
oh, it's not just that this person was mad at you. You were mad at you too. So that whereas it feels like an, uh, an imbalance. Now it's like you're really having to fight for your life in some ways. Yeah, and I bet that go-to way of fighting for your life has probably been a defense mechanism in the past too, right? Absolutely. You slip into that, mm-hmm. lash out, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm backed in a corner. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really having to sort of, yeah, yeah, fight yeah. for my life, protect myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Eckhart Tolle's book, he suggests that 80 to 90% of our thoughts are repetitive, useless, and negative. And I often ask clients that if they agree with that quote or not, and the majority do agree. Some think it's a little high, um, but then we explore that a bit. So I often like go through a list of negative self-beliefs, some common ones. And um, like, I'm not good enough. I don't deserve love. I'm a bad, bad person. Um, I'm a disappointment. I'm miserable. I don't, I'm different. I don't belong. But usually along the way I throw in, I'm a unicorn in there and get them to rate that one as well. And they kind of laugh a bit. And sometimes I get some creative answers in terms of uniqueness. But then I mentioned to them that I'm a unicorn might seem a little ridiculous, but I would argue that the other thoughts you're having within your mind are also equally as ridiculous and talk about why those thoughts are there, right? Our biology, genetics, and temperament and experiences, right? So again, kind of convey to them that because the thoughts are within their consciousness, it doesn't mean that they're always the truth. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But it's very validating when you go through that list, like they rate it quite high and then you can talk about it openly, right? Well, maybe why those thoughts are there, delve into it a bit. Are there some experiences or does that belief that that, that thought you have about yourself, does that sound like someone in your life or someone in your past? Mm-hmm. I think that depth work can be very important there just to put the pieces together a bit. Who, yeah, where does that voice come from? What does, whose voice does that sound like? Mm-hmm. Is kind of the question there, right? And is it your own or is it flashes of, oh, that one was my parent and that one was my sibling and that one was somebody in grade eight and that was a teacher and that was whoever, right? Yes. A partner and ex and um, our brain kind of collects them. Yeah. That's that's a uh, an intervention or a, or a question I often ask with, with clients is, Let's talk about the negative voice and yeah, who does that, who does it sound like? And not necessarily the, the, the voice quality, but like what they're saying, who does that remind you of, or who might that sound like in your life? And, and uh, it's, it's kind of a startling question for people at first to like, oh, it's, it's my own negative voice, but they sit and think about it for a second. Often they can link it to somebody, you know, it, it yeah. might be, it might be a family member. It might be a caregiver, it might be a teacher or a coach or something like that, where, where they've, they're like, oh yeah, that voice really reminds me of this person who was, was pretty critical of me or kind of harsh or, you know, trying to teach me in kind of a heavy handed way. And that can really be helpful for them to kind of parse that out a little bit and go like, oh yeah, that's, that's them. That's not me. Mm -hmm. That's where that imprint came from. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes as well for clients, like um, when we ask that question, it's not necessarily that that person said those things to them. Sometimes it's the client has witnessed that person saying those things to themselves, more so when it's a parent, that a primary caregiver that they've been around, obviously a lot. So if there's a primary caregiver uh, and the child has witnessed that primary caregiver talk negatively about themselves, 
So a parent's making dinner and whatever, and they forget, they realize they forgot something at the store or whatever. And they start saying, oh, I'm such a fucking idiot. And oops, sorry, I swore on the podcast. <laughs> or, um, you know, like, oh, I can't believe I did that. Or nobody's going to like this. Why even bother? Like all of a sudden, like you're witnessing the response to a situation. And later on in life, you might notice that that replays a little bit. So it wasn't directed towards the client, but they witnessed how a primary care caregiver spoke or talked to themselves about their own emotions in that moment. And it, it can still imprint, right? Could you even add to that how the caregiver might interact or comment on other people in the family or like the oh, other, yeah. people, right? Like criticizing yeah. or, you know, yeah. like anything, any watching. of Or even people out in public. Like, so if um, primary caregivers are highly judgmental of other people, maybe their appearance or, um, well, I guess mostly it would be appearance or behaviors or whatever. Um, that's then going to impact that that developing brain of what's right and what's wrong Mm -hmm. what's accepted and what's negative what do I get praised for what do I get condemned for Mm -hmm. because they're witnessing their caregiver do so to other things and then they will mold themselves to that right Mm -hmm. for sure yeah and then again uh or just having experiences in your past memories pop up. I feel like a failure because I did poorly on this test or I did this or I got yelled at. So maybe it wasn't explicitly said to them, but that is the conclusion they came up with mm-hmm. is, Oh, I'm not lovable. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's so many, and usually based on my experience anyway, um, there's a lot of stuff that happens in those teenage and childhood years. Right. Oh yeah, a ton. That's where you want to go back to. That's where you want to focus your time on because that's when, you know, these thoughts are starting to gain some momentum or become solidified in their minds or brains. Sure. And going back again, yeah, that brain development, like um, the ability to process through those situations to understand what is what is me and what is them and where is problem ownership and to keep that all separate. I don't, I don't think the developing brain is very good at that for quite some time. So there's many, many years of experience where it's very uh, unclear. Is it me? Is it them? Am I loved? Or are they just angry? And just because someone's angry doesn't mean I'm not loved. Well, that's true. So Chris, to, to put something pragmatic to this, if when you're saying go back to those teenage years, like what would you suggest a listener do. I mean, if, if there's, if there is a, uh, a, a period of critical uh, messages that a person received at a certain time, how can they work through that? You know, is it, it's more than just thinking about those experiences, I would imagine. Definitely a time machine. Yeah. Time machine works. Time travel. Do it. With DeLorean with flux capacitor, you can go back and, and revisit those past moments. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a few different ways to do it. Like within, obviously you can talk to a counselor or therapist and there's lots of ways to do that. And um, we're talking about Jamie Pennebaker earlier. So writing, even write about, you know, journaling. I have this strong yeah, journaling, I have this strong belief that I'm a failure and, and um, 
and maybe just start there and kind of see where it goes. And we often say like, when in doubt, focus on the feelings. So often there's feelings associated with these thoughts. So follow those feelings to an earlier time in your life when you felt that way. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think um, if you're feeling really upset, sometimes you just got to manage those symptoms, calm, calm the body, shift the mind. But, you know, it's often good to reflect on those moments and say, what the heck was going on there? If your reaction doesn't fit the situation, it's probably feeling memories or past challenges, right? Yeah. Um, so maybe just try to be Sherlock Holmes there and, and try to explore some of those moments. And this is a lifelong process. Like or a week or so ago, I was like, oh man, why did I just have that? quick judgment or thought and and i and i had this little light bulb moment i'm like wait a minute maybe you have to do this one situation and so yeah i think uh, just being open to that experience you don't have to do it all day you don't want to be up in your mind all the time of course but maybe put some time aside just to explore that those thoughts and beliefs yeah i think there's something to be said uh about the neutral observer right so to be able to um somehow create some space between you and your thoughts and observe them without judgment and just notice them and the body sensations that go with it and let that process through. I think a lot of that processing work of trying to revisit a younger time of life um, and feel the feels involves similar stages of number one, you have to name it. We have to identify what that was and flesh out what that memory was and allow yourself to feel the feelings that come up in that moment opposed to blocking them out because chances are you've blocked them out for a long time. Probably gotten very good at blocking them out uh, because those feelings are scary. And when they feel so uncomfortable and so distressing that you're going to distract yourself, you're going to avoid, you're going to do something else to make that feeling. It's like falling over the waterfall. You're like crashing over and that's scary. So we need to get to a place where we're aware of it, but allowing yourself to actually let that process happen and then get through to the other side and be able to then reconstruct in a different, from your adult mind, from your wise mind, what happened at that time? Like, let's look at that context and what actually happened. And, mm-hmm. and, and can I perceive that memory in a different way now? Yeah. Even sometimes, Brooke, I call it like kind of the Morgan Freeman approach, right? So you actually narrate that from a third person. So you say, Chris went to school that day and, and he encountered some kids or, or I don't know, whatever it was. And, and uh, so when you when you do it that way, you, you kind of, it's kind of a neat way of exploring those situations, but not um, being the, you know, in the thick of it in terms of the feelings. Yeah, totally. Being yeah, derailed yeah. by the feelings, yeah. Also uh, do writing where you write an alternative ending of how you wanted that to play out at the end. You can visualize yourself that moment and then visualize your adult, your current self going in and taking the hand of your younger self and removing them from the situation to a place of safety and telling that younger self from your adult self what they needed to hear in that moment to let them know you're gonna get through this, you're gonna be okay, you're there for them. Um, It sounds easier I know I'm just flying through those things, but those types of interventions will take one short memory that probably took 30 seconds in real life will take definitely one session, but sometimes more than that for each of those interventions. And you might have to do multiple interventions on the same 30 second episode for your brain to actually reprogram. Oh, 
Guys, I I don't know if you do this, but I, I can I can do this at times. I, I I was my 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 son's in eighth grade and and I was thinking uh earlier this week about an eighth grade like party that I went to and like something dumb that I did at that party, or I thought it was kind of dumb that I did at that party. And I could and I could still feel it. It was like so, oh gosh, why did I do that? Oh, and this was so many years ago, so many decades ago, right? I'm like, oh gosh, why did I do that? And it it can still have a visceral response. I could feel it in my body. Oh, this was, I feel so bad about what I did back then. And I know, and I know, because at, at sometimes with some of the, dumb things I've done in my past. I've asked my peers, the people who were there, and they're like, what? We don't even remember that. Like, what, what were you talking about? That's, I don't recall that at all. But we, we seem to be, we're much better collectors of our shortcomings and of our flaws than our accomplishments at times. And, and we, we overestimate the amount that other people were impacted by this than, uh, than they actually were, oftentimes. There are certainly exceptions, but but it's it's just so wild how how our brains work that way. And I know it's a protective mechanism, as we talked about before. But gosh, some of these things can really really hang us up sometimes, can't they? Oh, for sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's so intriguing. Yeah, like there's lots of examples of that. Like if you do your presentation and you get twenty nine positive comments, and one person says something kind of constructive. Who do you focus on? Are they all held equally? You know, right? No, you focus on that negative that piece of it. And so, yeah, I think that understanding is so important. But, um, you know, just when you observe it and, and see it non judgmentally, curiosity, then it does open up that space where maybe you can respond to those thoughts a little differently, right? Yeah. So, that's okay. where like the cognitive reframing comes in. So, Ron, you mentioned like, before, what would I tell a friend if they're having this thought? What would a friend tell me if they knew it was having this thought? Yeah. Is there objective evidence this thought is not true? Or would this thought stand up in the court of law? We dismiss the circumstantial. So really just trying to assess it from that angle, you know? Yep. Yep. So um, Barbara Fredrickson is a, a researcher of happiness. One of the like Seligman happiness researchers at the uh, University of North Carolina. And she talked about a, in order to, to overcome some of these, these negative thoughts for every kind of negative experience or, or um, kind of critical experience we have in our life, we have to have a three to one positive to negative ratio to overcome some of that, which seems pretty strong. But she's basically saying that if we have a negative, we, we've done something negative, we kind of need to, to pull up three positives about ourselves to sort of level the field, which two feelings about that. One, that's that's a lot. That's a lot to ask of a person to say, okay, I have to counterbalance this with three. Um, but also it's, uh, it also shows kind of the, the power that negative thoughts have over us, right? The power that negative thoughts and experiences have that we really need to, to kind of bombard ourselves with some of the positives in order to uh, to reach that balance. That's yeah. really interesting because um, uh, was it, it's the Gottman research, I'm pretty sure, in relationships, it's a five to one. Yeah. 
So, I mean, individually, we need three to one. And then to make sure a re an interpersonal relationship is positive uh, and strong. Yeah, it's five to one. Five to one positive like so, interactions? Or yeah. So if there's something that's happened that's uh, critical or threatening or like a negative, something that's kind of fractured or broken there. So an argument or a sense of, yeah. I don't, it could be something as simple as, you know, you ask your partner to go to the store and then they come back and they forgot the item, one of the items that you asked, there's like a, a, a small thing there. Right. And yeah. so there needs to be three or sorry, five positive things to counteract that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like an intentional, intentional things. Right. Or if there yeah. was some sort of misstep or um, yeah, misattunement, there needs to be five correctives. Wow. Really interesting. The way I often phrase it to clients is when you have a negative belief that pops into your mind, there's three approaches. You can notice it non-judgmentally curiosity, more of a mindful approach, mm -hmm. or you can pivot mind to positivity. That's the second option. So you can repeat a mantra. Personal favorite, of course, is let it go from Queen Elsa, frozen, or focus on something you're grateful for or something looking forward to. Or the third option is you can quickly and concisely try to challenge and reframe those thoughts. But the more I was actually talking to a client about that the other day and, and, oh man, it seems so daunting. It seems so, it seems so mental. You're trying to think your way out of negative thoughts. And so we actually took another angle. I'm like, what can you do? Let's, let's just, you know, recognize the thoughts are negative and repetitive and maybe not helpful, but just trying to focus on behaviors, right? Um, externalize, like engage in your role to, um, you know, sing a song, go for a walk, connect with people. We, in our today's society, we're so, we're siloed off. We're trying to figure out our mental health on our own, but we heal best in community. We heal best with others around us. Um, so I've been trying to focus more on doing versus trying to think your way out of negative thoughts. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking before about, uh, cognitive behavioral interventions and, and more psychodynamic stuff and like relational interventions. I, I actually feel that, that one of the roles for myself as, as more of a relational dynamic sort of therapist is, is to provide the client an alternate voice, right? Like a, you know, a yeah. perspective that, that says, Hey, you know, yeah, you were under stress during that time. It's okay. Like something that's more positive that, uh, that they can sort of eventually take in. And that's why some of this therapy takes a long time because it's important that uh, <clears throat> they have the time to take in and, and understand my voice that it is that, that sees them as not flawed and, and it's, it's not a judgmental voice, but it's one that's more positive and, and sees them as, as trying their best and doing what they can given their resources. And, um, and it's often really nice when I'm, when I hear from a client, you know, Hey, I was in this stressful moment and, and I heard your voice, even, you know, outside <laughs> of the session, I heard your voice say, Hey, you're, you're doing your best or you're, you're, you're working hard or you know, whatever it might be. That's like a positive as a counterpoint to this critical voice. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's always a huge win. Right. When a client mm -hmm. says that, and then I heard your voice and you're like, Oh, Good, good, good. We're going somewhere, right? Because yes. there's, especially clients with complex backgrounds or trauma backgrounds, like it's going to take a while. Like we can say those things, but it's going to, 
take a while for that client to believe that you're genuine in what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Like they're gonna at the start be like, yeah, you're a therapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you get paid to do this. Yeah, okay. But uh, it's when a client eventually uh, with a lot of my trauma clients, they get to a point where they say, I can tell that you genuinely care. And in yeah. that moment is after that, that then they're like, and then I heard your voice and then this, like, and then yeah. we start to see the, the healing relationship piece. But sometimes it takes a while for them to, to gauge like, nope, like genuinely deep hearted, wholeheartedly. Um, this person cares about me as a person. Yeah. That's a really good point because yeah, if there's any therapists or counselors listening, like the worst thing you can do is like in the first session say, well, this is not true or no, you shouldn't think like this. Don't think like that. Uh, they're like, well, what the hell? You don't even know me. You don't even know anything about me. So it takes a while to, to you know, for that person to really feel heard and validated and understood mm-hmm. to listen to their story and, and understand it before you can maybe you know, make those suggestions. Right. So I, I agree. Like those clients that say, Hey, I hear your voices are often ones that you have a really good rapport with. And you've, they've, um, it's been a bit of a longer therapeutic process, not always, but yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's, I think a, a really important part of, of therapy, regardless of what your therapeutic orientation is, is to internalize a bit of that therapist voice or, or at least their, not their voice, but their, their relationship to you, their, their feelings towards you so that they, so that you can kind of say, oh yeah, at least there's, there's this, there's someone who understands me, hears me and, um, and values me. Right. Because that, that critical voice is the opposite of that oftentimes. Mm-hmm. So it's good to know there's, there's something else that says, yeah, you're actually okay. True. Yeah. Yeah. And but, using humor as well, right? Um, trying to make light of some of how ridiculous some of these thoughts are. Uh, so like, I had a client I had a really good rapport with, and I said that you are extremely, like, amazingly good at avoidance, like, just masterful at avoidance. And sometimes you'd hear me say that and chuckle a bit and then step into that discomfort and cross that street, wherever it might be, right? Um, <laughs> You have to, you have to definitely know the client to know how far, like, yeah, what you can say, if you could be a bit more bold or upfront, or sometimes I ask a disclaimer, like, do you mind if I'm just really just blunt with you about something, depending on the client, you know, and often, often that's a yes. People are curious. I think in general, our clients are, want to know genuinely our opinion or our thought pattern on it. Yeah. yeah yeah true that's that's true that's what they're they're looking for something yeah. refreshing to have an authentic uh objective viewpoint of who they are yeah yeah I mean, and just like the disclaimer to reduce the defenses right out of the gate to be like mm, i have a thought about this i don't know if you're gonna like it do you want to hear it yeah yeah so my final point before we go is this uh, this last little question I threw out there, which is do people who are critical, highly critical toward themselves, do they tend to be highly critical towards others as well? No. I don't think it's a guarantee. 
Yeah, not a guarantee. Yeah. I think I think we're harder on ourselves than we are other people typically. Um yeah, yeah. I, even talking with clients, they'll be like, I put other people's needs before. I'll always cheer someone else on, but they're oh, they tried their best, but no, I could have done better. I, I feel like it's not. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's a guarantee. Yeah, I think sometimes you have projection that can happen. Mm-hmm. So you're very critical of someone else, but usually that is a reflection of how you feel about yourself, those automatic thoughts about yourself. Again, just making that division when you have that thought there, it's thought, like it's not you. It's, you know, you're not your thoughts and feelings, a space and place where thoughts and feelings occur is the reason why that thought is there, of course. And you want to delve into that. But um, yeah, so I, I think based on my experience working with clients, for the most part, people are way more critical of themselves than they are of other people. They're the exception to the compassion. They're, yeah. Yeah. It's almost like if someone's critical of others, you can pretty much guarantee they're critical of themselves. But if someone's critical of themselves, I don't think that's a tell that they're always going to be critical of others. Yeah. That's no. a good way of phrasing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good way of putting that show. What do you think, Ryan? What's your take on that? Uh, I, I agree with what you said. I, I, I've certainly known people who can be highly critical of themselves and others but but it's not a one-to-one yeah there's there's certainly the, the majority of folks are much more like the bias is it's, it's not a fair uh treatment they're much more critical of themselves than they are of other people they they're able to give grace to other people for things you know like oh you know oh she's not looking her best today but i'm sure that's because of something else but me i need to be looking my best all the time you know or something like that where there's 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 a uh an unfairness when it comes to that 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 judgment level yeah actually on the other end of the spectrum sometimes people have a hard time seeing how other people can be critical themselves like this person has it all together or they have this and that the other must be so happy i think sometimes the people underestimate the magnitude of how other people are experiencing their own vulnerabilities and negative self-beliefs. Well, and how does social media feed into that? You know? Oh man. Yeah. It's crazy. This person has it all together. The perfect life and they must be so happy. Yeah. If, If someone's presenting their life as perfect and always having great vacations and perfect dinners and all that kind of stuff, then they're not they're not presenting anything to be critical of right it's like oh this is they're they're great and so it's easy to to idealize the other while criticizing the self right that's a good point yeah it's so deliberate isn't it it's just you know it's what what do we want to present do i do i want to present something that's easy to criticize i'm going to show you how messy my living room is right now or i'm going to show you how great uh, my vacation is next week you know something like that you mean your vacation in six weeks to vancouver i mean my vacation, vacation to vancouver and which will be ideal okay good good if we're in the park under a pop-up tent uh interviewing strangers it'll be great ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, well this gives me a lot of clarity on the critical voice, on the negative self-talk. This was a lot of fun, actually, you guys. A great topic. Indeed. Great topic. 
something that's pertinent to all of us and probably many of our listeners. So, uh, so thanks for talking about it, guys. Yeah. I've been um, just kind of fidgeting with this little stress ball, but what do you think his critical voice is saying? Oh, Brooke holding up a stress ball that looks very stressed. So I think his critical voice is saying, I'm about to pop. <laughs> I can't maybe, handle this. Or maybe he had too much key lime pie or what? Yep. It looks like he's like, I'm not going to be able to hold myself together any longer. I ate a potato. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Wonderful. All right. Well, we'll sign off for now. So thank you, everyone. Like and subscribe. Apple, Google, Podbean, Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube. Your questions to our Instagram and our Facebook. And tell a friend or two and tell your critical voice to come listen to us. And we will talk to you later. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. I'm